Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. That were the words, we don't want to finish in the Champions League. But every time it was going wrong, we just kept turning around and blaming the coaches. He literally gets <laughs> what he wants and whatever he says goes. Um, and, and we ended up getting relegated that year, which I think was down to you know what was in that dressing room at the time. Well, it was really Sky that put an end to that. They may not have handled it very well. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technowood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we've recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the Best Equality in Social Sports Podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former footballer and manager. He was... He has managed teams such as Bolton, West Ham, Newcastle in England. Welcome to the podcast, Sam Allardyce. Welcome, boys. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Um, we from like... down the road, me, you know. <laughs> yeah. Dudley. I'm from Dudley. All right. Yeah, I've heard some things about Dudley. Yeah. We like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? But yes, I'm ready. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Probably Sir Alex Ferguson. If you could trade lives with anyone of for one for a day, who would it be and why? If I could trade my life for anybody else? Yeah, for one day. One day. For one day would have been... Um, 
Denzel Washington, who's my favourite actor. That's an interesting choice. Yeah. Just love him as an actor in the films he does. If you could have any superpower, what would you have and have and why? If I had a superpower, it would be to put uh, famine across the world to rights. So we had we had a uh, a lack of um, we had water for everybody, we had enough food for everybody, and we had enough housing for everybody. That would be my that would be my my biggest choice. Um. Thank you for answering those questions. Um, let's chat about your career. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Well, I was uh, brought up on uh, one, one Ash Green in Dudley down the road from you lads at Wolverhampton. And One, one Ash Green was, was exactly what it was, was a, a, a row of council houses and in the middle of those council houses was a green, which was called Ash Green. There were several several of those um, in the same area, Ash Green, Elm Green, Sycamore Green, Oak Green. So as a footballer, it was very easy for me to be playing football whenever uh, there was any daylight on those greens. And of course, playing with my mates and, um, and just playing football in general, not organised football, just two jumpers down as goals and playing against each other. So I think that's where it originated from. As well as uh, uh, that, I started playing at school as, at an early age at, at Sycamore Green School, which was only a short walk away. Uh, they had the school team um, in the last year, uh, the under-11s. And uh, I managed to play for two years because I was big Sam. And so I had, I had two years of playing. So when I went to my senior school, um, straight in the team and then managed the town team, the county team very, very quickly. So football was right in my, my mind from the age of nine, really, and, and going on from there. Went to Wolverhampton one just to watch them play. Um, and that just enhanced the fact that that standing watching football at that time just just the dream of playing football was was everything to me um in my school years like I mean so uh, fortunately for me by the time I left school Bolton Wanderers had offered me apprenticeship which was the one of the biggest moments in in my lifetime uh, you grew up in the West Midlands and made your debut for Bolton. What are your memories of moving to Bolton and playing for them? Uh, my memories of my debut were very nervous indeed. So I think that uh, when you you offered the chance to play in the first team and uh, you've been watching, uh, you've been playing, you're making your way through the youth team into the reserves and then you get an opportunity to play in the first team then obviously you're extremely nervous. You don't sleep very well the night before. Uh, you wake up the next day and uh, you can't wait for the game to get going because the nerves are sort of bad. You just want to get there and start get started, of course. So, uh, yes, extremely nervous, uh, a, a lot of sweating, a lot of worries about 
whether I would be good enough, um, whether I would manage to, to cope or play at first team level. What would the crowd think of me? And um, and that was obviously, uh, you know, a, a massive uh, a massive day for me, a massive breakthrough for me. And uh, and, and from there it went went reasonably well. So uh, I'd have to say it was one of the another one great moment. So it's another step forward to this wonderful career that I've had, not just as a player but as a manager. So the next step was uh, the first team got in the first team and, and managed eventually, not straight away, managed to uh, to get there as a first team regular uh, in in about eighteen months from then. You had a long playing career, which lasted lasted over 20 years and played for clubs such as Millway Millwall Millwall Coventry Coventry and West Brom can you explain to us what type of player you were and which club do you think you played your best football at? Um, well, well, the, be- the best football and the best time, there's no doubt about this, the best time of life is when uh, I left school at 15 uh, and uh, I went to Bolton Wanderers uh, with this dream of becoming a professional footballer since I was nine. So when you make your way to make your debut at 18 and then you get in the first team, and you grow up with a lot of lads that came at the same time as you. So Bolton Wanderers' first team was made up of a lot of lads that came through the, the youth team and a lot of players like Frank Worthington, Alan Gowling, you probably won't know these, that were experienced players from, from other football clubs. And we managed to get from the, the second division, which it was then, into the first division, which is now the Premier League. So... At that time, not only the best football, but also the best friendships, the best camaraderie. Uh, we had a squad, we had a team spirit that used to fight for everything. We looked after each other, we protected each other. So we played really well on the pitch, but we also had a great time when we were together and, uh, and really enjoyed ourselves. So that is the greatest, the greatest memory, I think, as a... As a football player, I don't think there's any doubt about that. The other, the other clubs were obviously very important to me, and uh, and, and the experiences that I gained, ultimately, even playing in America with Tampa Bay Rowdies, was a great help to my career as a manager going forward. So, I had just such a fantastic time as a player, but the best time of all was definitely uh, playing at Bolton Wanderers, and still are. Very friendly with a lot of those players I played with. Uh, you played for Millwall in the uh, 80s. During the 80s, football hooliganism was at its worst in England. As a player, what do you remember at that time? And I imagine playing at Millwall during that time was an experience. Yes, it was a big experience. They played at a ground called Coblow Lane um, under the arches. And I think that uh, the Millwall fans were renowned for their... Um, Hooliganism, hooliganism element, and I think that that was obviously for you as a player playing for them. It, it wasn't quite apparent, but for obviously the away supporters, that was quite a, 
a significant problem, but not just for them, but for everybody across the country. And um, uh, in that particular time, I had experienced fans coming on the pitch from both ends and fighting in the middle of the pitch and the referee having to take us off. So I experienced what was what was actually a terrible experience, really, and, and, and not very good for football in general. So after that, we had the spell where all of a sudden when we were playing football matches, we had these 12-foot fences that were um, erected all the way around the pitch. Uh, this was done by the government to stop the hooling in this element actually spoiling the game. So they were contained within that. So they're almost caged up like animals for that particular period. So I think that one good thing about football was that when the, when they got told to change their stadiums and bring them all all up to speed, which um, which was one of the most important things that happened in the in in this country. So stadiums then become a all seater stadiums then become a better place for families, and it it it, it shut out the hooligan element with a lot of hard work, and football became a family game rather than just two sets of supporters that want to want to fight each other wherever they went. So it was a particularly difficult time as a player uh, to actually wonder what was happening on the terraces sometimes because you didn't know whether there were. They were going to run on and go for you, or whether they're going to run on and fight each other. Am I am I right in saying that in 1991 you received a phone call from Father Joe Young from Limerick City, and he asked you to be their manager? Can you tell us about that, and why did you decide to go to Ireland? Well, this is, the 91 was a difficult period as a transition from uh, from uh, finishing as a professional player. And uh, and then trying to move into coaching and management, and uh, and having lost my job at West Brom uh, previously to that, and then working at working at Berry, I didn't have a job. So for the first job, for the first time in my life, uh, I was uh, sat at home wondering uh, what is the next what is the next thing for me to do. Um, is it going to be in football, or is it going to have to be outside of football? Because obviously. I still had to earn earn, um, earn salary wages for to pay my mortgage to look after my children and my wife and my house. So I had to try and find a, a, another avenue. And, of course, this phone call came from Father Joe Young. He was the chairman. I didn't know it at the time. He had this Irish accent. So I actually put the phone down on him when he first rang because I thought one of my mates was winding me up. So I thought somebody was actually... I got on the phone and thought, I'm going to wind Sam up here and pretend to be the, the chairman of the Limerick City Football Club. So anyway, lucky for me, Father Joe rang me back and said, I just want you to come over and have a look. We'd lovely, love you to come as player manager of Limerick City Football Club. So I was um, doing absolutely uh, nothing at the time. So went to went to Limerick and, uh, and decided to uh, become player manager, which was another... Another great experience for me because I could then uh, I could then challenge myself for the first time of actually being a manager. Can I do it? Can I handle it? And uh, and obviously the help on being a player manager was uh, was a big help. So uh, yes, that season was was very close to me, 
I grew very close to Father Joe. Thought it was a fantastic guy, and what he did not just not just for Limerick City Football Club, but for Limerick in general. And uh, we managed to have a great journey, winning the league. And um, and even though finances were extremely tight, where we had to go out collecting money sometimes, Father Joe would jump in the car and drive around and collect money off people in them so we could pay the wages. So it was a when people probably see me and look at me now and think what I've done. They don't remember these times like I do when we were we were just scraping around to get probably twelve hundred pounds together for the game on Sunday to pay the players. But it was a great experience and one that is very close to me in terms of uh, uh, enjoying enjoying the journey, but also thinking that I could possibly be a manager if I get the chance back in England. I can see on how a challenge in yourself has worked in your favour. Yes, definitely. Absolutely, definitely. You stayed at Limerick for a year before returning to England with Preston North End. Is it right that you played in the same team as your son? That's correct. Uh, Craig, Craig um, I was looking, uh, looking after the youth team and um, Preston then had an AstroTurf pitch, which, which was frowned upon across the country at that time but obviously it was a great place to train on but uh, I used to look after the reserves as well as the youth team and uh, because I'd been player manager of Limerick I wanted to try and carry on as, as much as I could to help develop these youngsters so in the reserves I could play as well. My son Craig who joined Preston from school um, we played together at centre half a few times so it was a fantastic experience for me and of course I'm, I'm for him uh, sadly, Crane never really built a, 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 a long career out of football, but that experience alone is is very dear to both of us. Like I mean, um, uh, unfortunately, in that period, um, the manager Les Chapman uh, got the sack, and the club asked me to take over for short term, which which I did. Um, but then, obviously, they took they picked a new manager. Um, John Beck then and uh, and life became a little more difficult then. Your first move into just management was with Blackpool was are you memories memories of that time and did you enjoy the move into management? Well this was a big a big decision for me because um, Blackpool had uh, uh, and a very flamboyant owner called Owen Oyston, and um, he was looking for a, looking for a new manager, of course, at the time. Uh, but was interviewing some big names like Brian Robson, Peter Reed, uh, people like that. Um, uh, fortunate for me, none of those none of those people um, wanted to take the job for whatever reason. So um, I decided to uh, to send my CV and apply for the job privately because I didn't want Preston to know because if they knew and I didn't get the job, they might well sack me and I would I would be I would be in big trouble because I wouldn't be earning any money for the family or the mortgage. So I had to do that quite quietly uh, and, and through a friend that I knew at Blackpool. So eventually I finished training one night, I finished training the under-16s at Preston and uh, jumped in my car drove to Blackpool which was probably only 15 miles down the road 
parked the car on the car park, changed into my suit, and uh, went in for the interview with uh, with the board at, at Blackpool. So um, I just sat there and listened to what they had to say for an hour or so. And um, oh, cutting a long story short, I think I shocked them by I said I just said, "When can I start?" <laughs> and, and they went, "Pardon?" I said, "Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't. I hear what you're saying. You know, if you can do this or do that, we can do this. I can start tomorrow." And they went, "What?" I said, "Yeah, I can start tomorrow. So if you want, if you want me, I'm here. I can do that." Like so, they sent me out, and obviously I had a, I had a chat for fifteen minutes or so. I was pretty nervous about it, and of course, and uh, uh, luckily for me. Uh, they came back and said, uh, "Yes, you can get the job." But it was—I took the job on all, nearly all their terms. So a very small contract, um, not a lot of money, considering you're the manager. But I needed to take the chance to find out whether I could, whether I could manage or whether I couldn't. And I was really frustrated at what was going on at Preston um, with, the, with the, the manager that was there. So. I had to get away, and so that was a big opportunity for me. So uh, I thanked um, everybody at Preston because I used to play for them, and as well as coaching there, and started uh, started at Blackpool and uh, uh, in, had a good first year, uh, as probably everybody knows. And in the second year, we missed out on promotion and ended up in the playoffs, failed in the playoffs, and then unfortunately, the chairman Owen Oyston. And decided to move me on. So all of a sudden, after two seasons, I found myself back looking for a job again. Um, is it right that you got sacked from Blackpool by the chairman whilst he was in prison? That's correct. That's correct. Uh, he, he got he got um, a, a case against him that uh, was proven against him that he felt that he wouldn't he would get off no problem whatsoever. But you know, we lost in the playoffs to Bradford City. Uh, he, he was unfortunately put in put in prison, and uh, they had a board meeting two days after, and uh, and, and uh, they told me that I was I was no longer wanted. I mean, this was a massive shock to me. I mean, a real real shock because because I built this team and I felt that we would definitely get promoted the year after because of the team we got. And, and I didn't. I never saw it coming. I thought, you know, you're not going to get sacked when you just just failed in the playoffs. But that's the decision they make sometimes, people. So I, re- I still don't know why or what the reasons were, um, because it was difficult to. If you don't do well and you, you finish in the bottom of the league and the results are poor, then you'd expect that you might get the sack. But actually, to finish in the playoffs and then get sacked was a was a big blow at that time. You then had a spell at Notts Country, County. County, before returning to your childhood club, Bolton. How did you feel returning to Bolton as a manager? <laughs> well, this was a, this was a dream come true uh, because um, we we contacted Bolton through my agent when Colin Todd left, and they were. They'd got relegated and were bottom of, or near the bottom of the championship. So, uh, I I won promotion with Notts County. Actually, won the league um, a couple of seasons before. So, 
I'd, I'd started to build a reputation that, you know, people were looking at me at managing and seeing how I was progressing. So Bolton were in serious financial problems at the time. The team was at bottom of the championship. They had a brand new stadium, the Reebok. Um, and, and, and I got the opportunity to, to go back. And I think that what swayed the board um, at Bolton was the fact that I was the next player. I was there for 10 years and, and I was coming back to rescue the club and try and make it better again. And of course, as a manager, uh, having, having won the league in Ireland and having won the league at Notts County, I've got a, a reasonable track record, having just failed in the playoffs at Blackpool. My CV was looking ever that little bit stronger. So getting picked to be the manager of Bolton was a dream come true. So th- this for me was the, the ultimate dream. And uh, when you when you can fulfil your dreams, it's the most important thing in your life because it, it, it's just a great, great feeling to be able to to work in this industry, you know. So uh, to have to go back and be manager. Um, I stood in the middle of the pitch on my own. It was empty, the stadium, and uh, said to myself, you are not going to fail. You're going to do everything within your power to make this club successful again, which was... Um, very difficult. It was hard work to begin with, but eventually we built built a fantastic football club with a fantastic team and a fantastic backroom staff. It was just a great, great journey. In 2001, you won the playoffs and returned to the Premier League. What are your memories of that and what was it like going up via the playoffs? Oh, that was extremely nervous again. The season before... We'd lost in the playoffs. My, I joined, I joined Bolton in, in uh, October the 19th, 1999. Our first game with Crew Alexander at home. You know why I can remember that? Wow. Oh. It's my birthday. So oh. I was 45. So I was, I was on my 45th birthday, starting to manage Bolton Wonders, which is my dream come true. At the end of that season, we finished in the playoffs and lost on the, on the second leg uh, to Ipswich Town away. Um, so we were really disappointed. So the next season was a big season for for us to try and uh, to, to try and overcome the disappointment losing the playoffs and try. And, so we got there again, and I think with the experience that we gained uh, the season before, uh, took us into the playoffs in Cardiff, and uh, this was a this was a dream come true. Um, one of the best goals ever seen by a Bolt Wonders player was the third one by Ricardo Gardner where uh, it was the last few minutes of the game and it was uh, we are playing Preston one of my old clubs one of my old mates David Moyes was manager and um, Ricardo Gardner picked the ball up in his own half beat three or four players and put it in the put it in the back of the net and it, it was just a well as we say in our game the icing on top of the cake um, the fans uh, the directors, families, friends. It was just a f- fantastic experience. I mean, going into the playoffs is is very, very, very nerve-wracking as a player and as a manager. And to win it is absolutely fantastic. So that was a great, great experience. Uh, you then signed some great players such as JJ Okoja from PSG. How did you manage to convince him to leave Paris for Bolton? 
Well, we we started to uh, sign some um, really big players at Bolton. Basically, we 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 scouted the whole of Europe uh, to look for players that were were very very good in terms of some of the clubs they'd been at, uh, but also at that particular time we're looking for a new club because the contract was running out or they'd fallen out with the with the manager and the, and the manager had, had left them out out of the team and were and were very very unhappy and wanted to move and of course the, the other reason was everybody wanted to come and play in the premier league um because it's the best league in the world and uh and so we decided that what we would do is try and sign some of these players um, to sustain first our position in the Premier League, but also not to put the club under too much financial pressure. So we gave out short-term contracts or we loaned players. And to our amazement, we started to get these players that wanted to talk to us. Um, the first one, the first really big one, uh, would have been Yuri Yorkaev who in the first season in the Premier League came to us in in January. Now he was a World Cup winner with France, a European a European Cup winner with France, and uh, also uh, uh, won the title in in, in Italy uh, uh, with Juventus. I think it was he was playing with. So we went to meet Yuri, and um, and I had to try and persuade him to come to come and play in the Premier League. And because I, because we managed that, and uh, Yuri came, everybody was amazed that in in this country that that Yuri actually come to play for us. So Yuri left at the end of the season after we stayed in the Premier League, and said he's going to play in the World Cup with France again. And when he finished playing the World Cup, he actually rang up and said, "Can I come back?" So Yuri signed a three-year contract then. And I think that was the start of people like JJ Acocha, uh, Ivan Campo from Real Madrid, Champions League winner, Spanish League winner, uh, Fernando Hierro from from Madrid, uh, Stelios Yenakopoulos from Greece, um, Gary Speed from Newcastle, um, Nicholas Anelka, and and in the end we built this sort of this great team on the back of what was probably the most important signing of all, which was Yuri. But JJ Akotchi came by meeting him in Charles de Gaulle Airport um, after the World Cup. And because we went to meet him, meet him there, and because we were the first, we were the first in line, he wanted to come to the Premier League. And you have to bear in mind that the PSG at that time had paid $10 million for him which was a huge amount of money then, and we were getting in for nothing. So this was a major, major, major signing. And uh, so we convinced JJ at Charles de Gaulle Airport, who said that he would sign for us. So I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm actually going to drive, and I'll see you, I'll see you at the Reebok Stadium tomorrow. And we thought, he's not going to come. He's not going to drive all that way tomorrow. I mean, he's going to drive from Paris, come through the tunnel, and then drive all the way up from from the south up to up to Bolton in the northwest. Well, 
he turned up at two o'clock the next day, signed his contract, and uh, there was a big splash in the papers about another great signing for Bolton Wanderers. So, so you, the the team was getting better and better from there on. So it was, he was a fantastic signing. You had some really funny moments in your career, such as laughing in the face of a Swansea player, laughing after you beat uh, Jose Marino. Did you enjoy uh, winding up the opposition? I enjoyed winding up the opposition managers. Yes, I think that um, uh, as 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 people as people know in the world of game, I have a very very good, very close friend, Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. And of course, when you learn how to um, stay in the Premier League and you start getting better and better in the Premier League, you then start to expand on it. How can you gain a, a margin of, of uh, advantage over the opposition? And at the top end of the table, a lot of press would always talk about uh, Sir Alex Ferguson psyching out managers testing managers, so on and so forth. So in my time, I decided that it was time that somebody at a smaller club would maybe try and just edge his bets a little bit and see where where it took him and see where it went. And of course, um, we, we would evolve as a team. And the one thing, the most major reason that I could wind other managers up was that my team at Bolton Wonders could beat theirs, which is not what they wanted, not what they expected, and they didn't realise how good we were, and because they underestimated us. And, and I think that that was the major, the major factor for me to be able to wind the position manager and say, well, we're going to do this, or the referee's probably going to, going to favour them. You know, I don't know why they keep moaning about coming to the Reebok. It's better than their state, stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I used to be able to get under one or two managers' noses because because I felt that was the right thing to do because they were never very kind to us um, when we played them. And when we beat them, it was always a fault of the referee. It was always a fault of their team not playing well enough. It was never any credit to the, the quality of players that we had and the fact that our tactics and our players were better than their players on the day. So that's where it came from. And, uh, and in, in all honesty, really quite enjoyed it in the end. <laughs> so basically you found it very amusing to tip off your fellow managers. I did, yes. I did. <laughs> Not all of them, because I know very close to quite a lot of them, but certainly some of them, some of them who, who disrespected me as a manager and disrespected my team, um, you know, I would I would uh, find a way of standing up. So instead of going to the press and complaining, I would actually start winding them up and start thinking of things that I could I could say before the game that would maybe agitate them. My personal favourite Sam was I'm a big Cardiff City fan, so I quite enjoyed it when you was it Chico. Um, you laughed in his face when he fell over. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh well, Chico. So Chico squealed when he got tackled by me, and he went like a little baby, saying, "Yeah, yeah." So I started laughing <laughs> because because I'm a centre half. I was now if I had started squealing like that as a centre half, my manager would have beat me up. 
And yeah. he said, what are you doing, you big softy? Get up and get on with it and stop, stop squealing or moaning. So I just decided to laugh in his face. Now, I was really hoping that he might, he might punch me because then we could get him sent off. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't, know. But what I didn't realise, and of course this is, this is social media for you, because when I went to the press conference after, they went, oh, have you seen yourself trending, Sam? I went, pardon? Well, you're trending on social media. So I went, all right, I've said, I don't know what you mean. So I went back to the, the, the dressing room and went to our, our analysts and said, something's trending about me, lads, on social media. So they, they pulled it up and, and showed it to the lads like you mean, so we all started laughing about it. So it was good. It was good fun. It was good fun. And we won that day, by the way. <laughs> nice. So your teasing wound up helping you with winning. It did. Okay. How would you describe yourself as a manager? Well, I would describe myself as a manager as, as, uh, as uh, forward-thinking and pragmatic, and, and I think that uh, my my time was to try and evolve football uh, in, a, in, a, in a different direction. And that, that came about by a lot of the experience I gained at, at playing in America um, and uh, watching the American football team train after I'd finished training and watching their staff and what they did. So when I came back to England and, and started managing Bolton particularly, I started putting in place a lot of what I'd learned in America, which was uh, psychology, sports, science, strength and condition, diet and nutrition, um, uh, things like yoga, uh, hydration, massage, meditation. Uh, so we started to build a, a team uh, behind the team, which was supporting the players to get on the pitch and perform their best. So that got frowned upon in, in early 2000 because I'd have been the first manager to have more staff than players. Um, which is a, a big thing for me to to manage them as manage, as well as manage the team. And, of course, uh, that became the real strength of Bortmund was the fact that we could uh, find these players of great quality and treat them in a manner that they really, really enjoyed the experience and played exceptionally well for us, even though a lot of people on the outside said they're just coming They're just coming to see the career out. They're just coming to pick up the wages. We didn't have any of that because the staff and the players that were already here wouldn't allow it. And that's why we had such a great journey together. If you haven't already, then be sure to download our new app, Gold, the home of challenges. Post and take on challenges, call out your friends and top leaderboards. Challenges can be about absolutely anything, so be as creative as you like. Be sure to follow our social media too for awesome giveaways. That's gold. In 2005, Boston finished. Uh, Bolton finished uh, sixth and reached Europe for the first time in their history. How important was that for the club? And was it uh, what was it like to manage in Europe? Well, it was obviously one of the one of the greatest achievements in my career. I think that. Um, Uh, to, to get born to Europe was a, was a fantastic achievement. Um, one of our concerns was being able to manage the European 
uh, games and manage playing in the Premier League and manage playing in the FA Cup and managing playing in the Carling Cup. And of course, the size of the squad then became the problem. So our planning from day one when we qualified for Europe was about how do we cope with playing in Europe next season? How do we maintain our Premier League status? Making sure that's the number one priority because the money that's involved in the Premier League sustains the club. And how do we how do we manage the squad? So I'm in talks to Sir Alex Ferguson and, and and people like that. It's about rotation, about recovery, uh, less time to train, but more more time to do what you need to do with the players to get them ready for the next game, physically and mentally. So that planning became the most important. So then the the journey of our first year in Europe became um, one of the one of one of the, well a great. I, I think if you talk to Bolton fans now and say what do you remember the most apart from winning in the playoffs would be the European away games that they, the the support that they gave and the the great time that they had uh, as well as we did travelling away into Europe. Um, was just a fantastic experience for them all and for us. So we we've unfortunately lost in the to Marseille. I think it was in the last sixteen, uh, two one. Um, but it was a fantastic season, and we maintained our our position in the Premier League in the top half. I think we might have finished eighth that year. So we a lot of clubs who play in Europe with the size of Bolton would would end up finishing in the bottom six in the Premier League because of the because of the strength the strains on the team. But we managed to finish well in the Premier League and and we had a great run in the, in, in Europe. So it was a great experience. Uh is it right that you were interviewed for the England job in two thousand six? Yeah that's correct. Yeah that's uh, that's his uh, um, that's a that was a difficult time because um, because obviously we were right in the middle of the the Premier League and um, we were coming to the back end of the season and there was a lot of um, owing and ahhing who it might be and eventually I had, a, I had a, my first interview um, which I prepared for obviously with the the blessing of the chairman uh, Mr Phil Garnside he was actually on the FA board he couldn't have anything to do with it but so I had an interview right in the middle or the back end of the season. Um, along with um, Steve McLaren, uh, who eventually got the job, and um, Alan Kirbishley, and then all of a sudden, I think Martin O'Neill, and then all of a sudden they went they went and interviewed. I think it was Scalari somewhere, and they were supposed to be picking picking a British manager this time. And then all of a sudden, there was a foreign manager popped up who seemed like he was going to get the job. So I hadn't, we I dismissed that I was actually going to. Get the manager's job at England at that time. I was concentrating on on Bolton Wanderers, and then uh, I had a phone call from the chief executive Brian Barwick, who said we've decided that it's it's going to be between you and Steve McLaren. So I found that quite strange, and and we will be making a decision in the next few days. Sam. Now, what Brian Barwick didn't know is we were playing Middlesbrough on that Wednesday, and and Steve McLaren was manager of Middlesbrough. So on Wednesday night, we played Middlesbrough 
I think we drew at the Reebok and we finished the game. Steve came in for a drink after and I said, congratulations, Steve. He said, what's that, Sam? I said, congratulations for getting the England job. He went, what do you mean? I said, well, I've not got the phone call, so it must be you. So I started laughing. And of course, in, in two days, Steve had been announced as the, as the New England manager. So uh, I got on with my job at Bolton and, uh, and continued to uh, have a great journey with them. But it was it was it was probably a little disappointed the way they did it, but obviously the the experience was uh, something I'll always remember. Did you ever get go for a, uh, an interview and at a club and not get the job? Uh, oh yes, many interviews. Um, in my early days, I got quite a few quite a few interviews, uh, even even some non league clubs. Um, I went for an interview and uh, and they still didn't offer me the job. So uh, Northwich Victoria was one. Um, I think it was Tamworth was another one, I think, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Conference League. So uh, I also wrote, um, or my wife typed out, a huge amount of applications for a job that ever came around and a lot didn't even respond. So I had a great big file like this. And, of course, on one side, I had a small file where people had actually responded and were kind enough to respond and say, at this moment in time, Sam, we're, we're not going to opportunities. And I had a file about that big where a lot of people never even replied, never, never even. And so uh, my wife t- made, me, made me swear to myself that if I ever I got anybody applying for anything, and I'm manager of a football club that we would always reply, which is what I did, because you're you're sat in a desperate position looking to try and get work at the football in football, and uh, and and sometimes just that, uh, even the acknowledgement, even though you haven't got it, you know, helps you continue to try and find your job you want. So yes, many jobs got turned down, uh, many jobs didn't get. Doncaster was another one, uh, went for an interview and, and didn't get that. Um, uh, Notch County was another one before I eventually got the job. Uh, didn't get that one. So um, yeah, there was a, there was a few in the early days which um, which were ve- which were very challenging for you because you always have to think in the back of your mind: if I don't get into football, what am I going to do? Is it right that you nearly became Man City manager? Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, the the owners of Manchester City. Um, had uh, decided that uh, they would like me um, when I left Bolton to be their manager. Uh, obviously, I was uh, particularly excited about that. And uh, uh, the owners then would, uh, they owned JD Sports, which was uh, which was still owned by two, two local guys in Manchester. So I was absolutely delighted that, that I could... Uh, to go and manage Manchester City in that, in that new stadium that they had. Um, and I think that uh, the season ended and sadly they rang me up and, and apologised and said, I'm very sorry, Sam, but um, we've sold the club. Um, and unfortunately, the new owner, I always remember his name, Mr Shinoatra, uh, had decided that he was going to have Sven Gorn Eriksson. I had to thank him very much for the, for the opportunity. Um, I was absolutely gutted that they'd sold out, of course, sold the club, but it's one of those things. So um, I then I then thinking I was going to have a bit of time off. Um, when 
the phone rang, luckily for me, Mr. Freddie Shepherd at Newcastle for the for the Newcastle job. You left Bolton when they were in fifth place and with two games of the season to go. Why did you leave when Bolton were in such a good position and so close to the end of the season? Um, th- this was a this was a, a fallout with the board. We kept it quiet, and I decided that at the end of January that that I had to leave Bolton was because of the lack of uh, ambition. Uh, we were in, on, on the beginning of January two thousand seven. We were third in the league. Our ambition, the players' ambition and the staff's ambition was to uh, push for the Champions League that season. Um, but our squad was was a little light, had a couple of injuries. So we were we were searching for two or three players to to boost the squad in January to, to make sure that we, we would finish in the Champions League that season, which was always our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal was to finish in Europe in in five years, we did it in three, and to finish in the Champions League ultimately. So this was the biggest opportunity that we faced, but I needed the team to strengthen to make sure we get there. And of course, that would mean less spending next season. So unfortunately, the board turned that down and uh, they turned the opportunity down to finish in the Champions League and said they didn't want to. That were the words, we don't want to finish in the Champions League. So. Inside, it broke my heart, but my head told me that I must leave because there's only one one way forward now, and that's downwards because of the, um, the lack of ambition, unfortunately. So um, I never expected it. Um, the club never expected it. I don't think the fans expected it. Um, but we kept that quiet for as long as possible because I, lo- I love the club and I really wanted to just finish the season. But unfortunately, it leaked out just before the end of the season and the board felt it better that I went to the last So my last game was away um, at Chelsea against Jose Mourinho. Um, managed to frustrate him again. We drew 2-2. Um, we were fifth in the league and uh, and, and uh, I, said, I had to say goodbye, sadly. So it still, it still breaks my heart talking about it, to be fair. But I had to think of me and my career and try and take my career forward and I think if I'd have stayed at Bolton Wanderers um, I think that I couldn't have carried on doing what I was doing without without the financial help of the football club to try and take it forward so um, these things happen in the game um, I really enjoyed with the board working with the board I really enjoyed working with the players I, I really enjoyed the fans, I enjoyed the re- I enjoyed everything about it. Um, but you know, my wife even said, Are you sure you're making the right decision? I said, for, for 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 my future and for my peace of mind. I need to try and see how far I can go because I am ambitious and the ambition was to try and get to the try and get into Champions League with somebody. And this opportunity with Bolton may never arise again. When would be when might we be third in the league in January in the Premier League with only 18 games left it might not happen again it might but it might not so I felt it time to move on sadly As a manager you have to sell players and manage players in the dressing room how did you find letting players go and do you enjoy looking after players? Uh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't find it too bad at senior level 
you know, it was difficult. You know, it was difficult, you know, saying to you, okay, F, like, you know, we, we're not going to renew your contract like you mean, because what you're telling Yuri Yorkaev, who's a world-class player, World Cup winner, is you don't think he's he can contribute to the Premier League anymore. And that's the most difficult. It, it was difficult for me, never mind Yuri, when I were told that, when my playing career was coming to an end. But eventually, you just can't keep up physically anymore. Technically and tactically, in your brain, everything fantastic, your skills, you never lose them. But when you can't run anymore, you can't play. So when, when your legs start slowing down it's it's a really it's a really big occasion and most of the time the player can't accept it so it is a very delicate time and a very difficult time and you have to plan it very carefully uh, so you so you can part company in the right way and of course uh, that happens in football clubs across the country um, week in and week out what I found the most difficult in my entire career was um, being the coach of the of the academies and coach of the youth team. Um, when a when a youth player is coming to the end of his contract at eighteen, and you're telling him that you're going to let him go, that is that is a hundred times more difficult than senior level because you're breaking somebody's heart. Not only the player, but also the family because they they want to become a professional footballer so much, and often they can break down and and start crying in front of you. So I found that to be the most challenging and the most difficult. At senior level, yes, it was difficult, but at junior level was much more challenging and much more difficult. I used to feel dreadful sometimes when I got home. Um, You had an up and down spell at West Ham. At times, the West Ham uh, crowd wanted wanted you to go and display banners asking you to leave. As a manager, how do you cope with those situations? Uh, well, it's the West Ham fans. I think that they are renowned for their type of support, if you like. Sometimes if things are going great, it's all right. Sometimes when it's not going great, they turn against the manager. So it's it's not just me. It's, it's most of the managers that West Ham have had. So it's not personal. It's just that they don't like the particular period that you're going through. And if you're not winning, they show their disapproval. So you don't take, you can't take offence to that. What you've got to do is improve results. But in terms of what my time at West Ham is, is I didn't quite understand that because we never had a bad time. So I took them up. We won in the playoffs in my first season. We were building a stronger team, season year in and year out. Um, I think the lowest we finished was 11th. In three years, in three seasons, and um, we were strengthening the squad. Then, slowly, we were not spending big money because they were moving into a new stadium, so there wasn't a lot of big money around to spend. But the the journey we had at West Ham, one of my best. What the fans or a small minority of fans do to you as a player and you as a manager, and and that's quite scary. Because the small minority can influence the, the vast majority and can particularly influence the press. And too many people listen to the small minority instead of, well, the majority don't complain. The majority don't hold banners up saying, brilliant, Sam, well done. There's only the small minority that create create a little bit of upset that gets picked up, gets picked up on social media, gets picked up by the press 
and then evolves from there, of course. So it's very sad, I find it. Um, let's look at Harry Maguire at this moment in time. Fantastic centre-half, England centre-half, best defender for England in the World Cup and the Euros, brilliant defender for Man United. Now he's getting hounded out by everybody, by pundits on the radio, ex-players, by social media, by the by the press. And they're actually doing the best to destroy him. That's a great shame. That's what happens in this country sometimes. But if, you, if you're in my position like me, you learn to deal with that. And uh, then I've talked about two skins. You won't know what this is now. But I have two skins, right? When I need to be tough, I have an elephant skin and I have a rhinoceros skin. And it's that thick, nobody can get through it. <laughs> so good luck trying. <laughs> Uh, in July 2016, you were approached for the England job. Was this different to when you previously went for the England job? Do you know who the other candidates were and how did you find out you you had got the job? I didn't know who the other candidates were um, at the time. Um, all, all I did was ask my agent uh, to, to contact the FA uh, to see whether they might be they might be interested in interviewing me. That was all. And, uh, and that interview evolved. Um, and obviously the interview was seemed to be good enough to to eventually give me the, you know, the best job in the country. But can also be the worst job, of course, as we found out in 67 days. But you know, that was a huge, a huge hot honor for me. It would always be an honor for me, but also a huge and the biggest disappointment of my life on what they did to me and and what they should have done that they didn't do in terms of just a just a bit of time a bit of protection and a bit of understanding that there was no wrongdoing here yes there were some things said that that being recorded maybe shouldn't be said but certainly wasn't enough I don't think to have dismissed me as the England manager but it happened you have to deal with it hugely disappointed and more importantly uh, what they do to you in the press and, and, and the media I mean that is just just unthinkable about some of the things people were saying and writing about. You had one game in charge of England and you beat Slovakia. What are your memories of that game? And was that the highlight of your career um, managing your country? Absolutely. Yeah, singing the national anthem before the game and then um, stood there as the manager of England for the very first time, having been with the players for the first time for, for seven, eight days. And I was making huge changes behind the scenes at um, uh, at St. George's, you know what I mean, where um, where the training centre is. And I thought I was going, me and Sammy lived going in, in, in a great direction. So the one thing that always happens when I talk about, which is um, at least I'm the only manager with a 100% record. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've, and nobody... Nobody can beat my record because I've never lost as an England manager. And I, I use that tongue-in-cheek. I will never be ever be able to get over the disappointment of, of that particular time. Um, but you have to look at it and try and be a bit light-hearted in the end by saying at least I have a 100% record. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, I've heard another one. Um, you have said previously that you changed lots of things during your time as England manager. What sorts of things did you change? Uh, we changed the we changed the uh, the, the train the, the training times. We changed the 
the St George's to be uh, exclusive. We wanted to change St George's to be exclusive to the players, which I think they do that now. So when the when the players actually arrive at St George's, nobody else is there. When when me me and Sammy first took over, there were still um, people booked in the hotel for the time we were together, and the players hated this because the players would just lock themselves away and after training just lock themselves in the room because if they came down for a coffee or anything like that, they'd just be mobbed by the people who were staying in the hotel. So we felt that to be one of the biggest and most significant changes. Having talked to the players about what the what changes do they want to see or want to make, that was one of the biggest, I think. So so that's what we were that's what we were trying to achieve. As as said George's was going to be the the hub for England and 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 still is the hub for England. We felt that was a, a necessary change to begin with. But obviously the most important thing was uh, was how would the players react to you and your staff uh, as England manager? That was that was us trying to make sure we were going to come over in the right direction and uh, and, and and not uh, not have too much disappointment going into the next uh, the next championship, which I think was the World Cup. On the twenty seventh of September, twenty sixteen, you left your position as England manager after allegations made by the Daily Telegraph. Can you explain to us what? actually happened because we read that the FA were wrong to sack you and you didn't actually do anything wrong uh, that side of it is something I can't speak to too much about because of the legalities of the being dismissed so I'm under confidentiality unfortunately okay. regarding that just about the disappointment that I, I didn't get the opportunity to defend myself and, uh, and, and that was a great shame it's alright you don't have to tell us okay. if you don't want to. No. We don't force people to tell us, th- us things. <laughs> we okay, ain't. This isn't you. an interrogation chamber. <laughs> no, that's definitely not. You're excellent. <laughs> you you quickly got back into management with Crystal Palace. Was it nice to get straight back into management and move on from what happened with England? Uh, yes, uh, this was a, this was. I mean, uh, family and family particularly are the most important important thing in your life but they come even more important when you're when you when you've been kicked to the floor and you've been you're down and out when people are talking about you in a very derogative manner and your family is the most important thing in your life anyway but it's even more important then so the support of my family uh, when when I lost the job with England uh, was was essential to my mental well-being and uh, uh, and and that family gets you through these periods, but then of course you look for an opportunity to bounce back, and that came from Steve Parish at Crystal Palace, who I'm forever grateful about the call to say, "Can you come and help us, Sam? Come and come and do what you do best, and get us out of a, a real struggle position, struggling position we are at Crystal Palace." So this was a fantastic opportunity for me to to get back into management but also it's a fantastic opportunity for my for my mental well-being to start doing what I'm good at and start doing what I love the most and that's managing Crystal Palace and uh, and that was a fantastic journey it was a difficult one to start with but in the end we had such a great run in the last 10 or 11 games it was just 
just fantastic. And obviously, along with Steve and the support of the board, was 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 outstanding. When they were when I needed them, they were there. And when I asked for something, they got it for me. Particularly players in January, and at the end of the season, we all we all took or tried to give them as much credit as myself and the players for actually staying up. Because without their help, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And we we beat Chelsea away, we beat Liverpool away. And probably one of our best victories was I think we beat Arsenal on three nil. And so um, we had a we had a fantastic journey um staying up into the Premier League. Did you ever sign a player and then regret it? <laughs> I like the I like the way you I like the way you put that question. <laughs> um yeah, in the early days at Bolton, one or two, yes. I think that uh, uh, from abroad, um, a big, big, big guy come to big, big CV, big reputation as a footballer. Um, Jabril Diawara played in the Champions League, Monaco, and came to join us. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, was very difficult to manage both on and off the field. Asked him to play in the position once and he refused. Oh. Actually refused to play in the position that I asked him to play in. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a, that taught me a lesson about making sure that we did, we did a lot more homework about the players um, on and off the field actions before they arrive. So we would dig, dig a lot deeper from there on into, the, into their history, their previous history. And uh, and find out what the person's like, not just the footballer. Um, so Mario Mario Jardel was another player, centre forward, fantastic track record in Portugal uh, and Greece, Brazilian international, scored two hundred and sixty goals in three hundred and fifty games. Just couldn't, just couldn't hack the Premier League. Just just not a. Just nowhere near the ability that we thought he had to to take us into the next level. So that was, and that's it's particularly disappointing because you bring him here, then you've got to try and do your best to move them on because they cause can cause quite a bit of trouble in in the dressing room. Like himself, there's a couple of players there that would be difficult. Yeah, I heard about I heard uh, occasional. Fighting in dressing rooms every now and then. <laughs> they they happen. Oh, that, yeah, well, that happens everywhere. But I mean, uh, yes, yeah, there's, there's there's the odd scuffle that could happen in a dressing room, and uh, and of course you've got to be very very aware. I think that it's not it's in in way back then. That's early two thousand. It wouldn't get out into the press, and didn't. But now, if it happens now, it gets out in the press, and it's a scandal. Well, in actual fact, you know, it happens quite often at, at, at lots of football clubs. And what you do is you just stop it and make sure there's no there's no after effect. And people get on frustrations happen. Somebody might tackle somebody and they lose lose the cool for a while. Tackle? You, you know. This, yeah, is, a, this is football, not rugby. <laughs> <laughs> you then had a spell with West Brom before retiring. Will we ever see Big Sam on the touchline again? Well, I you never say never, um, and I think that, uh, that West Brom was was um, right in the middle of lockdown, and, uh, and and of course, if you look back at my career, I had a spell at West Brom with Brian Talbot, 
as a as a coach. So going into back to West Brom was uh, and being from the Midlands was was a pleasure for me. But sadly, because of the pandemic and the restrictions that we had, I found it extremely difficult to do to do what I've been doing for a while, which is trying to save a football club. But again, I got a good support from the board to try and help. Um, so as much as I tried to enjoy it, I couldn't keep West Brom up. And that's one of the most disappointing things for me. As hard as I tried, as hard as we tried, the staff, it just didn't, didn't happen. And I think a lot of it, looking back, was the fact that the pandemic hindered us so much. We couldn't get done what we wanted to. But whether I come back or not, who knows? Let's wait and see. Before we finish, we would like to play a game with you that we only play with all our guests. That game is called Wrong Answers Only. We will, <laughs> yes, we will ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? Are you? I, I hope I can get this. <laughs> Go on. Let's it find should, out. It, should, it shouldn't be too difficult to answer incorrectly. <laughs> Favourite ground in the Premier League? <laughs> He's thinking. Fulham. Best player you ever signed? Radio Jardel. Ah. Highlight of your career? Losing my job at Blackpool. <laughs> Favourite manager you came up against? Sam Benga. The best thing about Sam Allardyce is? <laughs> He's so handsome. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask these questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. Zero. This week's question comes from our previous guest, which was Harry Redknapp, and he asks, if you won the lottery and won a £100 million, what would the first thing you would buy with it? A new villa in Portugal. Okay, very specific. Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question could be literally anything you want. If they're not in the industry or the sport they're, they've been um, successful in, what do they think they might be? Uh, okay. Okay. Interesting indeed. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Sam. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Cheers. All the best. So, uh, Alyssa, what did you think of today's episode chatting to Sam? It was really, really great. <laughs> he he definitely has a sense of humour, which is a good thing. honestly enjoyed it and I'm glad how many kind of connections he had in football in general. Uh, yes. And I was honestly surprised how many, like, uh, kind of trials or tribulations you had to go through in like I was surprised yeah. like that part I didn't really know about so like, that I feel really empathetic for mm-hmm. anyway guys hope you all enjoyed this uh, podcast episode make sure to follow us on social media Facebook Twitter TikTok Instagram and also listen to us on Apple Music and Spotify take care everyone see you next time bye The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. 
This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.